We're going to get right into uh, Matthew's gospel this morning. We're in chapter 12. We're going we're gonna to finish out this chapter, and then we're going to graduate into, actually, we're going to pause Matthew's gospel, and we're going to start um, the book of Hosea. And Trevor is going to take us through Hosea over four or five weeks, and then we'll enter the Advent season, and then we'll return to Matthew again. So uh, this, uh, this chapter, Matthew chapter 12, is all about the Sabbath. Now, what comes into your mind? I'm asking for your feedback. I'm asking you to talk back to me. What comes into your mind when you hear the word Sabbath? Rest. Okay, anything else? Worship. Okay, do you know what the word Shabbat, that's the Hebrew word for Sabbath, do you know what it, what it means transliterated, like in its most accurate transliteration it actually means stop. It means cease. Our scriptures translate it as rest because that correlates, but we tend in our American minds to think of rest as like lazy boy or taking it easy or feet up, where what Shabbat in Hebrew means is actually stop, like push back from the labor. Where is the first reference to Shabbat or Sabbath in the Bible? Talk back to me. Genesis what? Genesis chapter 1. Good job, Keith. That's it. That's it. In the opening pages of the Bible, we learn our origin story, right? So we come face to face in the opening pages of the scriptures with God's presence, and we come face to face with God's power in the opening stages of scripture. And in the midst of his whirlwind of activity, uh, our all-powerful creating God does something really surprising. He sabbaths. Six days of creating power, seventh day, God himself stops. Why is that surprising? I find it surprising because he's infinite and he's infinitely powerful, which means that he doesn't need to take a break. He doesn't need to kick his feet back. Right? He doesn't get tired. He doesn't run out of energy. He doesn't need a recharge. God never sleeps. Ever thought about that? God never sleeps. He doesn't need it like you and I do. And so he creates heaven and earth, and then he settles a man and a woman made in his likeness in a garden paradise. And what the scriptures teach us in the opening pages of Genesis is satisfied. God takes a rest, and he settles into rest with them. Look at Genesis 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he Sabbathed. He rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God Sabbathed or stopped from all his work that he had done in creation. God's taking of rest and setting apart this seventh day for Adam and Eve's rest, what it would do is actually set a pattern for all men and women and children to follow thereafter. And it would prior this, this stopping, this weekly rhythm of stopping would prioritize trust 
and rested presence between God and his creation and between his creation and other people, between human relationships. It would set up a pattern to develop worship and to develop healthy relationships. So I want you to assess. Here's a little bit of a self-assessment. On a scale of one to 10, one being not at all, 10 being I'm totally committed to this. How well do you prioritize Sabbath rest? I'll go first. I'm like a four. Just shout it out. Some days I'm a three, some days I'm five-ish, but I'm, I'm like pretty weak here. Shout it out. What, if you're willing, like what, how do you assess yourself? What do you got? Three, five, two. Like that, that's, a, that's a good snapshot for us, like on where we are in this category of prioritizing rest. So there's actually another word that the writer, the author of Genesis uses, and right after this account of God resting on the seventh day, there's another Hebrew word for rest that the writer uses. It occurs just a few verses later in Genesis 2.15, and it's the word nuach. And this is what Genesis 2.15 says, the Lord God took the man and nuach him put him, rested him, settled him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. The idea here is both Shabbat, both Sabbath and Nuach are words that the Old Testament uses for rest. And the connection is really intriguing and it's pretty insightful too. So where Shabbat or Sabbath means literally to cease and to stop and to rest, to refrain from work, Nuach actually means to literally settle in and dwell with the people and the persons around you. So here's the idea. God worked to set the stage for his creation and creating Eden. Right? And then he intentionally ceases and rests from all of his creating activity and settles in with them. Dwells with humanity. Right? Attending to the relationship and teaching them to follow the pattern that he was setting. So... God's own work and his own rest from his work, his focus on relationships, it actually sets a pattern for all men and women to keep. Don't miss this. In his mercy, he creates Sabbath. And the purpose of Sabbath is to bring healing and rejuvenation to people. That's the purpose of Sabbath. That's the purpose of this weekly rhythm. He did not create people. He did not create us so that he could command us to keep it. He created it to rejuvenate us. And so things go, as, you, as we read through the account of Genesis and this early origin story of humanity, things go off the rails quickly. People, Adam and Eve, abandon God and they continue to procreate. And so they have families and these families turn into communities and these communities turn into cities. And these, these groups of people splinter and fracture into nations. And out of the nations, God elects this chosen nation, the nation of Israel. And he would relate to them in a special way. His blessing would be upon them. He'd give them distinct access. But they too would rebel against him completely off the rails. They would not return their hearts to him as individuals or as a nation. And eventually they're made slaves of the nation of Egypt. And these Egyptians, they, they ruthlessly work 
the Israelites seven days a week for 400 years. Think about your pace. Some of you own businesses. Some of you work your tail off. Some of you are involved in startups. Like, you know what it is to work, 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 work. And you go hard for 28 days or 30 days, and the clock starts ticking. How do you feel at the end of that? You don't feel rested at all. How exhausting is slave labor seven days a week for 400 years with no rest whatsoever? But the account of, the, of Genesis and the scriptures teach us that God miraculously delivers Israel from the Egyptians and from this ruthless, brutal captivity. And he begins to give Israel these clear relational laws that we know as the Ten Commandments. And the fourth of these laws is the, the rule or the law of Sabbath. It's the law of imposed rest. This law is a gift. This law is not a burden. It's meant to lighten the load of the Israelites. It's not meant to increase the load on their shoulders. It was made to serve them. They weren't made to serve it. It was there to remind the people of Israel that God consistently provides. So he's saying, stop your work. Watch me. Focus on me. I will provide for you. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. This is where we find this fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments. God, he commands the Israelites through Moses, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Keep it distinct from your other days. Six days you labor, do all your work, but the seventh day it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gate. So who works? Nobody, nothing. There is no work to be performed here. In six days, so he, he then roots it to his creation activity that we just read about. For in six days, the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything that is in them. And what did he do on the seventh day? He Sabbathed on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blesses the Sabbath day and he makes it holy. Now, the scriptures say very, very little about what people are to do and not to do on the Sabbath. But a couple of things the scriptures are really, really distinct about. They are not to work on the Sabbath, and they are to limit their travel. So in Exodus chapter 20, he says, you shall not do any work, you, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who's within your gates. That's pretty explicit. It's pretty clear. You're not supposed to work on this seventh day of the week. And then uh, Moses, as he's writing this uh, account of the Exodus in Exodus 16, 29, he speaks from the Lord. The Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. So on that day leading up to Sabbath, you're probably worried about where the food's going to come from. How, what, are we going to have to starve ourselves on the seventh day? No, no, no. The Lord is actually going to provide for you. He's going to take care of your base needs. You are not going to be in want. You will be okay. And so Moses tells the Israelites, speaking for God, remain each of you in his place. Let nobody go out of his place on the seventh day. This doesn't mean they can't go outside. It just means that their responsibility is not to forage or to go looking for food. So the idea is settle in, in worship. Focus your attention on the God who made you. Focus your intention and your employment on the people who he has given to you. 
Now, the, I don't want to oversimplify at all, and I'm not. The scriptures do say more about the Sabbath, but where the scriptures predominantly speak about Sabbath is actually, uh, the, the, they, it actually details how, is, how the Israelites disregard God in the Sabbath. And so he's regularly coming to them and saying, you're not keeping it. You're not keeping it. Return. And they won't. And so he hands out consequences and discipline to them because they're treating this command of God with contempt and indifference. So parents, like you've got little people and they treat some of the rules of your own home with contempt and indifference. You warn and then you discipline, you bring, like, you bring consequence. It's the nature of formation. Here's what happens over time, though. The religious leaders, they, 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 in reality, they want to keep the Sabbath holy. They want to honor the Sabbath. And so what they actually do is they make a handbook of sorts on how to keep the Sabbath, how to honor it, how to set it apart, And it actually becomes, over time, about 24 chapters of technical details, numbering in the realm of like 1,500 technical details on how far you could walk on the Sabbath, what you could lift, what constituted a burden and what did not, who you could help, and how to go about all of these details in order to keep the Sabbath holy. If, if, you, were to, if you were to read this in the Mishnah, it's like the rabbinic um, commentary on uh, the Old Testament, on the Torah, and specifically on the Sabbath day, we would, I think we'd be tempted to scoff at it. Like, are you kidding me? This is actually impossible for us to keep. And Indeed, that is actually what happened. So under the, the, the rule of these religious leaders, the burden of Sabbath keeping becomes impossibly heavy for the Israelites, for the people of God. And so they began to live functionally as though man was actually made for the Sabbath. Man was made to keep the law rather than the law being made to give man rest, and it crushed them. It's no mistake that Jesus' offer of rest in chapter 11, verse 28, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble and gentle in heart. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's no mistake that Matthew positions that invitation from Jesus right before the Sabbath controversy in Genesis or in Matthew chapter 12, because now Jesus is going to start tangling with these religious rulers over how he treats, how he sees, how he observes the Sabbath. This is what David Platt says. He says, the weary and burdened were those who had the law heaped upon them with the idea that their righteousness depended on keeping certain rules and regulations. So we're going to see in verses 1 through 8 here. This is a long setup, but open your Bibles, open your apps. Um, Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8 here. At that time, the time when Jesus had offered this invitation, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath day. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and, and to eat them. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence 
or the showbread, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only lawful for the priests to eat? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple actually profane through their work the Sabbath, and yet they're guiltless? I tell you, Jesus would say to them, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, he told them earlier in chapter nine to go and look what it means, but they didn't. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would, have, you would not have condemned the guiltless, his disciples. They were guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus is leading these disciples through a grain field on their way to this Jewish synagogue. They're going to worship. on Sabbath for Jews is on Saturday. We worship on Sunday because it's the day of the resurrection and Jesus has fulfilled this law. But these disciples on this day, they're prioritizing worship. And they're hungry. And so they go through the fields and they pick the head of this grain off. And Luke's gospel tells us that they kind of mash them up and uh, in their hands. And then they, they put them in their mouths and they eat. They were, they were hungry. Um, the, these Pharisees, they see Jesus' disciples and they actually say, hey, you guys are actually breaking the law. You're reaping grain and threshing it in your hand. You're actually doing work on the Sabbath, and then they accuse Jesus by proxy. They're like, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Therefore, they're accusing Jesus because he's actually their rabbi here. And his first response and words, his first response to the legalists here is a brilliantly returned serve to them. He goes, have you guys not read? Experts of the law. Have you not learned this? Have you not spent years of your life dedicated to learning what the law says about the Sabbath? They, they're, they're functionally justifying themselves by how well they keep the law. And if Jesus is saying something like, hey, have you guys not read this? I mean, experts of the law, they would have, I, I would have been defensive right out of the gates, like trying to figure out where he's coming from and what he is doing. And what Jesus does is he actually, he, in this little text, he's going to reach back into various places in the Old Testament, which I'll, I'll, I'll show us here in a minute. But he reaches back into the historical books into 1 Samuel chapter 21. He reaches back into the life of King David, Israel's great king. David has been anointed king, but he's not yet functionally king. There's another guy named Saul who is actually pursuing David and David's men. He's got this band of men. And so David and his men, they're on the run and they're hungry and they're literally starving. They're famished. They need food. And they go into a town where the tabernacle of the Lord is. That's the tent of meeting. It's like a prototype of the temple. They go um, to this tabernacle and they talk to this priest there who's in charge, a guy named Ahimelech, and they ask him for this bread. It's the bread of presence or the showbread. Every, um, every week on Sabbath, the priests in the tabernacle would bake these 12 large loaves of bread. Each loaf would represent the tribes of Israel, and they were there. They were put on this gold-covered plated uh, stand, and they were there as a sign and a symbol to the people about how God would provide for the tribes of Israel, how he would feed them. But in the law, God said, after this bread, after its ritual use is finished, you priests can go ahead and take that bread after the Sabbath day, and you guys can eat it yourself. And so David comes in 
on the Sabbath, right after the Sabbath, the showbread is still there, and this priest named Ahimelech actually gives David and his men this bread, and it sustains them. People differ on whether David, uh, whether Ahimelech rather gave David this showbread because Ahimelech knew that Dave was the Lord's anointed or because as priest, he just had authority to do with the bread what he wanted. And he, in his mercy as the priest of the tabernacle, decided to feed the hungry to extend mercy with it. People are undecided, but regardless, Jesus uses this historical example uh, to make a larger point to the accusing Pharisees. And the point is this, mercy trumps ritual. Mercy before ritual. There's an order to God's priorities. God's mercy is his motivation for giving the Sabbath. His mercy is his motivation for giving the law. What Jesus is functionally doing is driving these Pharisees back to their Bibles, back to the scriptures, and he, as God, as the one who has made the law, is challenging their man-made traditions and religion. He's challenging their additions to his law. And then before they can even take a breath, they're back on their heels, they're on the ropes, Jesus goes in to teach another lesson, and this time not from the historical books, but from the law of Moses. Jesus appeals to Numbers chapter 28, and he says, Or have you not read again in the law how the priests who work in the temple, they profane the Sabbath day and are guiltless? Their their job was to work in the temple. Their job was to facilitate the worship of Israel's people. And his point, the point that Jesus is making, is that there's these provisions in the law that address... uh, their God-ordained duties on that day. But because they're humans, these priests, yeah, they, they have to work. They still need Sabbath, so they had to figure that out. It's been something for me to figure out as well. Like uh, Sundays are not typically a day of physical rest for me or emotional rest or verbal rest for me. Um, They are a day of worship, but I've got to figure out like where, what day of the week my rest as a human being comes in. And that's on Thursday nights and to, into like all day Friday, but I'm, I'm not good at it. I still treat Friday a bit like a day off. And what do we do with our day off? That's just another day of work that we don't get paid for, right? Oftentimes, that's not actual Sabbath. Sabbath is like pushing away from our work, pushing away from our God-ordained responsibilities and saying, no, functionally, I'm actually going to step back from that stuff and I'm going to rest. I'm going to focus on him. I'm going to focus on the people around me and I'm going to trust him that he's got me, that he's going to take care of us. He's going to pay our bills. He's going to provide for our tables. He is going to take care of us. Now, anybody that serves up here, whether you're on a setup crew or whether you're leading worship or whether you're hosting or whether you're working with the kids on a Sunday, it's not a physical day of rest for you. So we have to prioritize if we're serving in this environment on a Sunday is when will, be a, when will we prioritize that day of rest and of worship? In verse six right here, Jesus says, He says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. I tell you is his way of asserting his authority. Uh, We learned about this quite often. He would say this, um, you have heard it said, but I tell you. He'd say that in Matthew's gospel in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7. You've heard it said, but I tell you. 
So what Matthew is doing here is he's showing how Jesus is slowly peeling back his authority, the layers of, of his identity as Lord, literally of everything, Lord of heaven and earth. In between, have you not read and did you not know, Jesus says, I tell you something greater than the temple is actually here. Um, R.C. Sproul, a good theologian, he says, to grasp the significance of these words, we need to understand the importance of the temple in the Jewish mind. So as Jesus is saying, something greater than the temple is here. What does that mean? The temple, like the tabernacle before it, represented the presence of God in the midst of his people. It was the center of the Jews' religious life, the central place of worship and sacrifice. But Jesus said, however, that there was one in this place, he's speaking of himself, who was actually greater than this place of worship. R.C. Sproul writes, the Pharisees must have been absolutely stunned when he said this, yet they should have known it. Everything in the tabernacle and later in the temple, all the symbolism that God so meticulously prescribed for these magnificent sanctuaries, it pointed beyond themselves to a living temple, to the living presence of God dwelling here with his people. It's actually pointing to his in the flesh, his incarnate son. God was actually dwelling in the temple of Jesus' body, John tells us in chapter 2. Or Hebrews chapter 1 says, In him, in Jesus Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Where God only lived symbolically in the temple of, that was made of wood and stone. So here's where R.C. Sproul wraps up. Jesus was the one to whom the temple pointed. That's the point. That's why John wrote that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the original language, the verse says, the word Jesus became flesh and tabernacled among us. The big idea is that Jesus is the fulfillment of, of the center of Jewish worship. He's the fulfillment of the tabernacle. He's the fulfillment of the temple. He's something greater than the temple. He's the Lord of everything. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's the greater David. He's our great high priest. He's the all-powerful Lord. That word last week means, we saw it means master of our worship. He's master of our work. He's master of our rest. He's master of our relationships. And then for the third time, Jesus reaches back into his Hebrew Bible with another rebuke. And now he's not talking about the historical books or the law, but he's actually talking about, he's, he's reaching into the minor prophets. A guy named Hosea is who he quotes in chapter 6, verse 6. He says, if you had known what this means, that I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Here in context meaning, you would not have condemned my disciples for eating grain as they were hungry, walking to synagogue. And then Jesus, he, he just, he, he, he fires this, this flare of controversy and conflict for the son of man is actually the Lord. He's the master of the Sabbath. They're looking at a guy in the flesh saying this, so they're going to reject that out of pocket. What Jesus is not saying is that the Sabbath should be abolished. That we should just do away with all of that. He was assigning a hierarchy of values. Mercy comes before ritual. Our mercy, people's mercy, God's mercy comes before ritual. Flexible heart before inflexible ritual. So like where the rubber meets the road, parents, if your kids are throwing up on a Sunday morning, should you tend to them or should you come to church? It's not a trick question. 
tend to your kids, right? Middle schoolers, high schoolers. Like if you've got a friend who's in need and they're not quite ready to come to youth group, but they need you to remain present with them. Like, do you go to the Zychek's house on a Sunday night or do you stay with your friend? It's not a trick question. We stay with our friend. If you see somebody get tailgated on the way to community group, do you stop and check on them or do you like refuse to be late to community group because you got like the food and it's going to get cold. By the, no, you like, you stop and check on the person. I, I grew up in, in a church that had an unwritten law and the unwritten law in our church was that you never, ever, ever wear a hat in the sanctuary or in the auditorium. It was probably, you guys were like, Ooh, where's this going? Uh, the, the idea uh, was probably rooted in some military tradition. We had um, some old timers in our church who were real staunch about that stuff. And I remember one time, one of my friends brought a, an unbelieving friend to church with him on a Sunday and they enter into the auditorium. And before these guys could even sit down, literally uh, what, a, a guy comes up and he threatens this kid. And he says, I was in youth group and this guy was in youth group at the time. He says, if you don't take that hat off, I'm gonna take it off your head right now. They hadn't even sat down. This kid never returned. And his friend and I will never forget this moment. Ritual was valued over mercy and it was a tragedy. There are a hundred better ways to make that point than the one this guy made. But this kid broke an unwritten law. So by quoting uh, Hosea 6.6, Jesus is assigning a hierarchy of values. He's saying, of course, he wants sacrifices. He's not yet fulfilled the sacrificial system. That's not all done. That fulfillment isn't all there, but mercy is more important than ritual. So here's the principle for us. Here's what this means for us. When When there's a conflict between ritual and mercy, the way of Jesus is to always default to mercy. When there's a conflict between ritual and mercy, the way of Jesus is to default to mercy. Make a day of rest your priority, but don't neglect mercy. Jesus here is the master of the Sabbath. He's the God who created the day of rest where we stop and we prioritize our worship and we prioritize our people. Eugene Peterson says it like this. You've probably never heard a sermon where R.C. Sproul and Eugene Peterson are quoted in the same sermon. He says, Sabbath is that uncluttered time and space in which we can distance ourselves from our own activities enough to see what God is doing. Think about that. Think about creating uncluttered time and space for yourself away from your activities so that you can see and distance yourself to see enough to see what God is actually doing in the world around us. We'll see in verse 9 through 14, Jesus would go on from there and enter their synagogue. Notice the word there here. There's a gap that's opening up between Jesus and the people of Israel. He's entering their synagogue. He's God, but he's entering their synagogue. A man was there with a withered hand and they asked him, is it lawful then Jesus to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? Matthew tells us their motivation. Jesus says to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? Exclamation point. So the deduction here is that it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath, to extend mercy on the day of rest. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against Jesus how to destroy him. They're looking to bait him. They're looking to trap him. 
Jesus, full of mercy, effectively says, let me rescue this man. You know, just logic alone says it's okay to heal and to do good. Prioritize, yes, but do not refrain from doing good on the Sabbath. And so Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He does what he wants, and what Jesus does is good. Imagine being the guy there in the synagogue at this moment. Like Jesus rolls in. There's been some buzz that this healer is coming in. You're going to get your shot. He's got a withered hand. It's, it's not working. And these guys point him out as the example and say, it's Sabbath. Is it lawful to heal on Sabbath? And they're like, they're ruining his shot. Imagine that moment. You'd be so bummed on the Pharisees. But so that the Pharisees would know that Jesus in saying he's Lord of the Sabbath that it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath so that they would know he gives them a sign. He heals this man. He restores his hand. He makes him whole. He brings wholeness to a disabled man. And yet the Pharisees, they choose ritual over mercy here. They're in opposition to God. Verse 15, we're going quick. That's okay. Verse 15, Jesus, aware of their desire to destroy him, withdraws from the synagogue and many follow him, and he healed them all, and he ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. So now Matthew is reaching back 700 years before their time, quoting an Old Testament prophet named Isaiah. This is literature about the Messiah. And he says this, Behold, my servant, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he, this servant of the Lord, will proclaim justice to the Gentiles, or judgment to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anybody hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. So Jesus knows that the Pharisees are conspiring and he withdraws. He's not a coward. He just knows his time had not yet come yet. But other people who had needs follow Jesus out of there and don't miss this in the text. And many followed him and he healed how many of them? He healed all of them on the Sabbath day. Not just the guy with the withered hand, but all of them. He's Lord of the Sabbath and good. This is a day that is set apart as holy. Days of worship are days for healing and days for wholeness. Days are set apart for us to set our minds on the healer and his work in our world. And Jesus here orders these people not to say anything about him. Uh, theologians call this phenomenon the messianic secret. We see it a lot in Matthew. We see it a lot in Mark. We see it occasionally in Luke. But Jesus will do something really profound, really powerful, and then he'll, tell, he'll say, don't say a word to anybody. And sometimes people will obey that, and sometimes people will disregard that. But he knows, essentially, that he has the attention of the Pharisees, and he has the attention of the crowds, and yet he wants his, his time has not yet come come, and he wants things to occur on his timeline, not the timeline of the Pharisees, not the timeline of the crowds. Matthew, in quoting Isaiah, uh, he says, behold, my servant, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I'm going to put my spirit, this is God speaking about his Messiah, I'm going to put my spirit upon him, and he's going to proclaim justice to the Gentiles. If you're familiar with the life of Jesus, this probably echoes some familiar language to you. What does it remind you of? 
a time in Jesus's life, these words are almost verbatim. You know it? Jesus's baptism. As Jesus is baptized, the, the witnesses there with him, John the Baptist and some others, they hear a voice coming out of nowhere that freaks him out saying, behold, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Some accounts say, listen to him. And then the accounts of Jesus's baptism say that they saw something majestic, something that they didn't quite have language to describe, but they saw something like a dove coming out of heaven, descending and coming to rest on Jesus. And Luke's gospel tells us that that was the Holy Spirit. Jesus, right out of that moment of his baptism, he opens up his public ministry. And the first words of Jesus's ministry, the very first word is what? Do you know that? The first word that Jesus utters as he embarks on the mission of God is what? It's what? Repent. It's repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He would boldly proclaim judgment to the Gentiles, those who are non-Jews. So his message would, would come to Israel for sure, but it would not be limited to Israel. It would also come to all who were non-Hebrews or non-Jews, everybody, most of us probably in this room. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is for Gentiles too. And it's, repent is not a bad word. I continue to say this over and over and over again. Repent is a beautiful invitation that we've got God wrong. He's far more merciful than we think. When we sin, we run away and we shy away and we try and clean up our act over here so that we can come back. But that is bold-faced religion and it's anti-gospel. Repent means change what you think about me. Change the way that you relate to me. As you sin, in your sin, in your folly, in your guilt, in your fear, in your shame, rather than running away until you can clean your act up on your own, I want you to bold-faced come into my presence and ask for mercy in your time of need. And will you not see that I will grant it abundantly and gloriously? Your soul will come alive at the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God. Repent change your mind. The kingdom of heaven is upon us. A new way of life, a new way of flourishing is here. God is incredibly inclusive, but we cannot consider him our equal. He comes on his terms. We've got to change how we relate to him. He t- Matthew quotes from Isaiah, and he says that this Messiah is not going to quarrel. He's not going to cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. This is um, poetic in Hebrew here. The idea is that Jesus isn't going to shout back. He's not going to do things like we do things. He's not going to fight humanity who hates him on our terms. He's going to do it on his terms. He's going to come in gentleness. He's going to come in humility. He's not going to come in pride and arrogance and pomp. A bruised reed, he won't break. This is hard for us because we don't really utilize reeds in our day, but they were a commodity in Jesus's day. They were used for all kinds of things, from musical instruments to uh, pens and to writing instruments, and, and they were expendable. They were cheap. They were inexpensive. And if a reed was bruised or damaged, you just threw it away and got another one. It would be like a piece of paper or a pencil in our day. You just it's not a big deal. It's two cents. It's not a big deal. Just get another one. But, but Isaiah is saying, actually, like those expendable things, Jesus isn't going to shun or shame or send away. 
to the people of his day, a low value was placed on the undesirables. And the undesirables in Jesus' day were women and kids, forgotten ones, those who were lame and those who had diseases. What, what Isaiah is foreshadowing about this coming Christ is that when Jesus comes, he's not going to overlook them. The ones who are passed over in society, he's not going to overlook you. The bruised ones, the wounded ones, the grieving ones, he's not going to turn you or I away or like a, a candle that's just at the end of its, uh, a flame at the end of its life, on the end of a wick, just that little fragile flame, he's not going to reach out and go, that's not his posture to us. And this is how he's going to operate until he brings justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. And here's where we'll end. Jesus' just ways will triumph. They're going to triumph over the unjust ways of humanity. There's so much injustice in the world, we can feel it. And in Christ, the Gentiles, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles will experience hope, will experience a good future, will experience the best kind of future, ultimately in the day that we meet him face to face where there is no estrangement, like, there is no distance from God. And Jesus promises this to us in his death and in his resurrection and in his ascension where he sends us the spirit and in, in the promise of his return, Jesus is the ultimate guiltless one who has been condemned and who has been sacrificed. And in mercy, God has come to be treated by us like this for the sake of atoning for our sins and setting us free from the bondage and the hopelessness of our sin and to give us rest for our souls. That's the rest that Jesus promises in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who labor, who are working your way to God. It's not how my system operates. Our justification comes by faith, and this is a gift from God. It's the grace of God. And so his promise to us is that he will dwell and he will rest with us. And our ultimate rest will be complete as we experience him face to face. Now, Sabbath. What does this all have to do with Sabbath? Until then, until that day that we see Jesus face to face, I'm using this word intentionally. Celebrating Sabbath is a very good idea for us. It is not drudgery. It's an invitation, even a command. So think about a commanded invitation from God for us to cease our work and trust that he will provide. It's a key to our flourishing where we prioritize the reality of his presence and we prioritize our being present to him and present to the people around us. And it's on days like this, one time per week, or if you got to start somewhere, one hour or one four-hour block per week. It's on days and rhythms like this, once every week, that we can see and celebrate God's mercy most clearly. For us choosing this rest, it's an act of trust. So just to recap it, Jesus mercifully values our rest and Jesus values how we extend mercy. And when it seems for us that mercy and ritual are in competition, we need to trust Jesus and we need to choose mercy. We serve a God of mercy and now we have become 
a people of mercy. And if we're out of step with that, something is off and we must assess. Pray with me. Father, we, we love you. We thank you. I, I thank you for Sabbath. I have not been taught this. Many of us have not been taught this. Just by the number score that we gave ourselves earlier, we have much room to learn and to develop the art of pushing away from our work and prioritizing your presence and presence with the people that you have given us. Lord, lead us. Give us tangibles. Every person where they are, give them opportunity and ideas for how they can pursue this and overcome our pushback, please. Well, I can't because this is due and this is due and I'm just not ever going to be able to make it happen. Would you help us to think in a way that is strategic and in a way that is bold and in a way that is courageous? Help us become the most rested people on earth earth who work hard. May we glorify your name through our work and through our rest. In Jesus' name, amen.